you would take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And that is one of the easiest places to find in the Bible, right at the very beginning, the first page. Genesis chapter 1. Last week, we took a look at the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I mentioned that one of the tensions we have in our day is, is people beginning to question what we see in places like Genesis chapter 1 and, and 2 and 3, and really in some places all the way up through chapter 11, and trying to think through what's going on. And I think one of the big reasons is because what we find in these first chapters uh, don't seem to match up with what uh, modern secular evolutionary theory tells us about uh, where the world uh, came from, how old it is, uh, the nature of human life, these kinds of things. And then the tensions between what we find in Genesis and what we find in uh, what our world tells us about these things, there's, there's various issues that come into play. There's questions about how old is the earth. There's questions about uh, how did this world come about? What was the progress? Uh, what was the nature of, of how this world came to be? And Lord willing, we will consider those uh, questions in the coming days. But I want to consider uh, a key question that is probably not so much a concern to non-Christians, but among Christians, there's a lot of debate in Genesis chapter 1 about uh, what is being described when it talks about the creation week. The week of creation, what actually is being talked about when Genesis 1 talks about the creation week. Even this week, I saw a video from a well-known uh, evangelical pastor. Uh, you may have read books that he has uh, written in which uh, he was uh, trying to argue for the fact that throughout church history, uh, many people have come to Genesis 1 and have said, you know, I'm not really sure that we can say these are literal days. And so they've looked for alternative explanations. And so that shouldn't surprise us that today we have evangelicals doing the same thing. Now, I, I think actually that what we're seeing today is not what we have seen in the history of the church. And we'll talk, Lord willing, about two uh, common ways that people have tried to understand Genesis 1 in our day. And I don't really think you see anyone in the history of church making the claims that they're making. In part, because in the past, when you had people who came to Genesis 1 and said, I'm not sure that Genesis 1 is actually talking about a little creation week, literal creation week, Typically, what they said is, God made the world in one instant. He just spoke and everything just came into existence. And so he kind of stretched it out into one week in Genesis 1. But in our day, they're doing the exact opposite of that. In our day, they're saying, well, it took much longer than a week. It took a really long period of time. And you don't actually see that in the history of the church. And so why do we see that today? Well, this person as well in this video was trying to argue that people today are not being driven by trying to, to somehow match up with what we see in evolutionary science and, and the modern understanding of geology and try to fit that back into Genesis. And yet, I, I said to confess, I don't see how you can understand it any other way because these theories didn't come around until people outside of Scripture started to say the world's much older than we thought in the past. And so then believers came back and started to say, well, is there a way to fit time in here? I, I don't really think you can understand this happening any other way. 
And as well, when you really look at the history of the church, those who, who took a serious approach to God's word and sought to understand it in a historical, grammatical, theological way, that, that almost universally, they have come to Genesis 1 and have said, these are literal days. The only people who didn't were people who tended to allegorize scripture or people more in our day today who are trying to, in some way, I think, modify and match up scripture to match up with what they see in the world around us. i just give one example of this, of the kind of the traditional, I think, orthodox way of approaching this. The London, Second London Baptist Confession, which is uh, one of the standard historic Baptist confessions, it was written in 1689. And in that confession, they say this, in the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And that's basically been the understanding of, as I said, people who really tried to understand God's word and take it seriously. Now, before we delve into Genesis 1, I want to just take a brief moment and ask, is it ever okay to say, you know what? We thought this was what God's word said. But then as we considered other ideas, as we considered other truths, uh, maybe we misunderstood what God's word said. And so let's go back and see if we could understand it uh, in a different way. Is that ever wrong? Is that ever okay? I, I think it could be okay. Because is it possible for us to have misinterpreted what God said? Yeah possible for us to have misinterpreted what God said. And so it's never wrong to come back and say, well, did I misread this? Did I not understand what's going on? But if once we do that, we come back to the Bible and say, you know, it really says this, and I don't see any way that it doesn't say this. At that point in time, what we do is we say, obviously, I'm misunderstanding whatever it is out here. Because God's word is the final answer. And I have to submit myself to what he has said. So with that in mind, what I want to do this evening is to really wrestle with the idea, is Genesis 1 talking about six literal days of a creation week? I want to begin by considering a couple of views that don't believe this is six literal days. And the first is one that you may be familiar with. Uh, It's often referred to as something like the day-age theory. The day-age theory says that in, in Genesis 1, When it talks about days, it's not necessarily talking about 24-hour periods of time. It's talking about generic periods of time. And so the length of time that God took to make the world isn't actually described in Genesis 1. Uh, There's a long period of time. Why is it uh, that people argue for this? Or think it this way, what in the text do they point to to try to say it's not literal days? Well, one of the things they point to is is found in chapter 2, actually. Of Genesis. In chapter 2 and verse 2, it talks about the seventh day. Seventh day, God completed his work, which we had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The reason to point to this is if you read through chapter 1, you find in every other day, it, it talks about there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening in the morning, the second day, evening, morning, the third day, and so on, all the way through. And when you get to day seven, it doesn't say there was evening and there was morning. And so they say, well, that actually maybe tells us that there was no ending to the seventh day. 
that in fact the seventh day is an eternal time period. It's an extended time period. It's God's eternal Sabbath rest. And they point to other passages of scripture in the New Testament. You might uh, remember in John 5, when Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and, and the religious leaders criticize him, one of his responses is to say that my father is working until now and I myself am working. I say, so what's that tell us? That tells us that God the Father works on the Sabbath. And so Jesus also works on the Sabbath. And, and so wh- how does God the Father work on the Sabbath? Well, his Sabbath is an unending Sabbath. It started right after creation was finished and he had an unending Sabbath. And so the seventh day is not a real day. It's an unending day. The point is well to a passage in Hebrews chapter four, where the, the author of Hebrews uh, points to this passage, indicating it, it seems that God is promising some type of ongoing rest and calling people to enter into that rest. And so they say, well, if the seventh day isn't a real day, then we shouldn't think the other days are real days. So what should we think of this argument? Well, first, I think the best way to, or the more natural conclusion as we're reading through chapter one into chapter two, and we see that there's no evening and morning mentioned in in day seven, is to say, well, that doesn't surprise me because everything else that was mentioned in all the other days is also not mentioned here. If you read through Genesis one, not only do you find there was evening and morning, but you also say, God said, let there be, and there was, and God saw it and said it was good, and there was evening and morning. We don't see any of that in chapter in, in, on day seven. Why don't we see any of that on day seven? Because he wasn't creating on day seven. And so the fact that there's no evening on day seven is because he wasn't creating on day seven. None of the elements of the creation days are there because it was different from all the other days, not because it wasn't a day, because it wasn't a day on which he was creating. And as well, and we'll... Uh, talk about this a little bit more. I think the idea of evening and morning in some ways is transitional. It's taking us from day one into day two. And we don't go from day seven into day eight, which is why we don't see an evening and morning here. We shouldn't conclude, well, that must not be an actual day. It must have been an unending day. We should simply conclude that was the end of the creation week. And because God didn't create, that's why he doesn't talk about evening and morning. And I'd be happy to talk to you a bit more about some of those New Testament passages. I'll simply say this, uh, briefly trying to answer them. If you think about when Jesus says, my father works on the Sabbath and so do I, uh, Jesus is actually working on the Sabbath, right? And so when he says, my father works on the Sabbath, what should we think he means there? Unlike the actual day of the Sabbath, like the first day of the week, when the Jews practice, or the seventh day of the week, when the Jews practice the Sabbath, and Jesus is working on it, that's the same day that the Father's working. He's not saying the Father's working on some type of eternal Sabbath. He's saying the same thing that Jesus is doing. That God the Father, even on the Sabbath, is demonstrating mercy. Even on the Sabbath, is working out his plan of redemption. And so it makes sense that the Son would be doing the same thing. And then Hebrews 4, the fact that uh, the author kind of points to this as maybe a picture of an eternal rest. Uh, An example elsewhere in the book of Hebrews the author points to Melchizedek. And he points to Melchizedek as in the narrative of Genesis, uh, not having father or mother. There's no record of where Melchizedek came from. And so he says, because he has no father and mother, it's kind of a picture of Jesus's priesthood that has no beginning and has no ending. Now, did Melchizedek have a father and mother? Yes, everyone does. 
but it didn't record it, and so it kind of allowed the author to say, this is the kind of a picture of what the priesthood is like. Did day seven have an evening and morning? Yeah, it did. But the fact that it wasn't recorded may have allowed him to say, there is this idea of an ongoing rest. It allows him to point to it as a picture, not because the day itself was never-ending, but because it didn't have that evening and morning, it allowed him to kind of point to that. The second argument they make, you're here in chapter 2, look at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. They say, well, that uses the word day there, but it seems to be talking about all that God did. And so here the word day doesn't mean just a day, it, it must mean uh, an extended period of time. And you might actually have a translation that translates it not in the day, but something like when the Lord God made earth and heaven. How many of you have a translation that, that translates it when? A few of you? And that's because that's probably the best way to translate that. Because what we find in chapter 2 and verse 4 is an idiom. Uh, and it's not that much different than the kind of idioms we have in English. You might talk about, you know, back in my day, we did this. And what do you mean? Like, what was your day? Was it like September 27th, 1963? Like, no, it was in my time, right? That was in my day. And that's what we have here. It's a, it's a preposition. It's, it's, an, it's an idiom. In the day that the Lord did this. And we find that kind of idea elsewhere. In the days of the judges, in the days of the kings, in this time period, when this was happening. And so that doesn't surprise us because the word day can mean that. But nowhere else, nowhere in chapter 1, is it found in that way. Nowhere in chapter 1 does it say, now in the day that this happened. You actually find day by itself there. And that's why we understand that day uh, can have this kind of more metaphorical idea, but it's only in these kinds of phrases. A third argument they use as they look at passages like Psalm 90 and verse 4, where it says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or like a watch in the night. Or 2 Peter 3.8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And so when God talks about a day in Genesis 1, he obviously can't be talking about a literal day because God doesn't experience time like us. And I'd say, I, yes, those passages are saying God doesn't experience time like us. But does God know what a day is? And when it says to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, does that mean that the Lord has no concept of our time? He made time. He knows what time is, even if he's not bound by time like we are. He certainly understands what time is. And, in, and really, that would make no sense unless we actually know what a day and a thousand years are. What, what does a day have to mean in 2 Peter 3? A 24-hour period. Because otherwise, you've probably heard this before, if a day is an indefinite period of time, that verse is saying, with the Lord, an indefinite period of time is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like an indefinite period of time. Like, well, that doesn't really communicate a whole lot, right? The Lord understands what a day is. The Lord understands what a thousand years is. He's not bound by time in the same way we are. But if he tells us this happened in one day, he knows how long that was. He certainly can communicate that. And so the fact that God's not bound by time doesn't make us understand Genesis 1 
in any different way. And then a fourth argument that's used is that what happens on the sixth day of creation, there's too much that happens on the sixth day of creation for it to be one day. So I'm here quoting from someone who's, who's trying to argue too much happens. He says this, the sixth day includes God's creation of Adam. God's putting Adam in the garden to till it and keep it and giving Adam directions regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's bringing all the animals to man for them to be named, finding no helper fit for Adam, then causing a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and creating Eve from his rib. The finite nature of man and the incredible large number of animals created by God would by itself seem to require that a much longer period of time than part of one day would be needed to include so many events. Now, if you look through that list, almost everything in that list is something that God did. And so did God need more than a day to do any of this? No. The only part of that list that might create some tension for people is Adam naming the animals. But I think it's helpful to consider uh, some, some truths related to that. So first of all, look, if you're there in Genesis 2, still look down at verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And so Adam isn't going on a safari. He's not trying to look around. He's not trying to to bring all the animals in. What does it say happened? God brought them to him. And so Adam's just standing there as these animals go by. Notice as well what is described here as being part of this. In verse 19, we have every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. As well in verse 20, all the cattle, the birds of the sky, and every beast of the field. Now go back with, if you would, to chapter 1 and verse 20. In chapter 1 and verse 20, God it says, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Now, only one of those two groups are found back in chapter two. None of the sea creatures are included in chapter two. And so in Adam's naming in chapter two, he's only naming the birds. He's not naming all the sea creatures. Go as well, look as well as chapter one and verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And again, there's a group in this verse that isn't mentioned again in chapter 2, creeping things. I think that would include insects, perhaps lizards, I don't know. But certainly, that's cutting out a large portion of the animal kingdom. And so in chapter 2, we actually don't have Adam naming every single created thing. We have him naming certain categories, probably the categories that would most likely relate to him. The kinds of, because the whole point in this is to say, is there a partner? Is there a helper? Someone who's compatible with you? And so it's most likely the, the larger kinds of creatures that we'd think of. And additionally, we'll see this, Lord willing, more next week, but as God creates things, he, he's creating things according to kinds. And so the number of creatures would be much, much less at this point in time than what we see today because we, we have an expansion of species all within particular kinds. And so one example that people, pe- people typically point to, I think about all the different kinds of dogs we have. And by kinds there, I'm using our language, not biblical language. All, all the different varieties of dogs. Probably all of those came from one set of dog. 
And so he's not naming, you know, Pekingese and Cocker Spaniel and all these kinds of things. It's just dog. And that's it. And so there's probably a much smaller amount than you would think of. And Adam, at this point in time, is the perfect man. He has been gifted by God to rule over the created order. And so he has the mental and physical capacity that has not been affected in any way by the curse and by the fall. And so I don't think we should conclude that it would be impossible for him to do this within one day. So I don't see any reason in light of that to view these days as anything more than what we normally expect them to be, literal days. A second view that's become common in our day, and, and uh, part of this we'll probably deal with in, in a couple of weeks, but I want to just briefly deal with some aspects of it now, is called the framework theory. And in general, what the framework theory says is as you read about the account of creation in Genesis 1, he is talking about a literal week in Genesis 1, but he doesn't mean it actually happened in a literal week. It's just a literary device. It's just a, a framework. It's just a way in which you can kind of plot how God you know, made the world, but it's not actually telling us how he did it. It's just a framework to explain the nature of what he did. And so they point, they argue, you read through Genesis 1, and it's, it's really poetic. It's very figurative language. It's not meant to be read literally. And the, the parallel between days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6, in which God creates uh, uh, a place, and, uh, and then in, in, in days 1 to 3, and then fills that place in days 4 to 6, show that it's not actually what God did. It's just kind of a, a way that Moses and God put it together so that we would understand it. And there's a lot we could say about this. I would just point to, to two things for now. The first is that you read through Genesis 1, and if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you know what you know right away? Genesis 1 is not Hebrew poetry. Have you ever read Hebrew poetry? The answer is you have. You just read it in an English translation. What's Hebrew poetry? We have, we have a part of our Bible we call what? The poetic books. So think about the Psalms. Think about Proverbs. We studied through Proverbs all of last year. In Hebrew poetry, what is the distinguishing mark of Hebrew poetry? Repetition and parallelism. Uh, the Lord made the heavens. The earth is the work of his hands. That's the kind of thing we do over and again, right? We say it, we repeat it another way. Or the book of Proverbs. The wise does this, but the foolish acts in this way. That's what Hebrew poetry is. And that's what you see all the time when you read Hebrew poetry. Do you see any of that in Genesis 1? You don't see any of that in Genesis 1. There's none of the marks of Hebrew poetry in Genesis 1. There actually is something in Genesis 1 you find a lot of that you also find a lot of in the rest of the Old Testament that you find all over when you are reading narrative. And one of the ways I've, I've found helpful to think about this, you, some of you might remember the King James was very common, and it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. Right. And, and what you find there is this and then, and then, now this, now this. And you find that over and over again in chapter one. And that's what you find throughout narrative, in, in Hebrew narrative. And so when you look at what kind of genre chapter one is, it has all the marks of Hebrew narrative. And really, the, 
there's no difference when you move from chapter one to chapter two and from chapter two to chapter three. And what's in chapter three? The fall of Adam and Eve. And it has the same grammar kind of things that you find in chapter one. And the same things you find in chapter four and five and all the way the rest through Genesis. There's not a change in how it's read. And so if you're going to say chapter one is poetic and figurative, there's no reason not to say the whole book is poetic and figurative. But it's not. It's historical narrative. That's exactly what the genre is. And then just as a quick note, the, the, the kind of parallelism between the days isn't quite as neat as they want to argue. And I'll just give you one example. We'll, we'll talk about this more next week. On day two, you have God dividing the waters above from the waters below, and he sets an expanse in the heavens to divide them. And then on day five, which would be the parallel day, he makes birds of the air and creatures of the sea. But he doesn't make the sea actually until day three. Day three is when we find the sea. And so the birds might match up pretty well with the expanse he puts. But the sea creatures actually match up not with day two, but with day three. And so I don't think it's quite as clean of a, a structure that they're putting in place. Um, not because there is no order. I think there is order. I think God is putting an order in his creative work. But he didn't just throw this framework on it to describe it. He actually is describing what he did because he is a God of order and a God of wisdom and a God of design. So having worked through some uh, counter uh, views, I want to briefly consider why it makes the most sense to take Genesis 1 when it talks about days as normal days. And this is going to be brief, right? So, so buckle up. And I'll, I'll say this as well. Um, I have been directly influenced by Dr. McCabe, who taught Old Testament at our seminary for many years. Uh, I think most of the arguments are, are not unique to him. Uh, these are pretty common arguments you'll find of anyone who's really studied through this passage. But I am directly indebted to having studied with him on these things. And so some brief reasons why it's best to understand these as literal days. And the first is the fact that God uses the word days. He could have used the word ages or times or seasons or anything like that. He uses the word day. And one of the meanings of the word day is a 24-hour period, a day. And in fact, when you find the word in the way that it's used here, by itself and singular, right? So not in Genesis 2-4, in the day of, when it's in a prepositional phrase like that, when it's in a compound phrase, when it's by itself and singular, everywhere else in the New Testament, it's a 24-hour period or the daylight time of a particular day. And so it's never an extended period of time when it's used in this way anywhere else in the Old Testament. So it would make us think it's probably used that way here in Genesis 1 as well. As, and additionally, look at chapter 1 and verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days, and years. And what's he describing there? Well, he goes on to talk about the sun and the moon and the stars. And what are they supposed to mark off? Day and night and days and years. What should we understand that to mean? Seems pretty obvious, right? 
the daylight hours versus the nighttime hours, and 24 hours versus longer periods like years. And so if that's what day means in chapter 1 and verse 14, and he's saying, this is how we know what a day is, the sun and the moon and the stars help us know what a day is, wouldn't we expect that as he talks about days in the rest of this chapter, we'd think the same thing? When I read day everywhere else, I'd think, oh, I know what that is. That's what the sun and moon and stars help me to know. That's what marks off days and nights. And so that's what he's talking about in the rest of the chapter. It's a consistent usage within that chapter. A second reason we should take these to mean days is because each day is numbered. Uh, We find at each point in time discussion of the first day or or day one in verse five and then the second day in verse eight and then the third day in uh, verse 13 and so on. And so whenever you see numbers like this in an order, you should expect it to be a normal day. And in fact, we have another example of Moses writing in an order where he talks about the first day and the second day and the third day and the fourth day. And I encourage you to write this down. We won't take time to to go there just for time's sake. But in Numbers chapter 7, we have an ordering in which the different 12, all the 12 tribes bring gifts in preparation uh, in, in, in building the tabernacle. And it says, on the first day, this tribe brought these things. On the second day, this tribe brought these things. And as we read that, what would we, what do we expect that to be describing? 12 sequential days. And that's in the same section that Genesis 1 is. It's all part of the Pentateuch, all written by Moses. And so if we see that's how he uses this kind of language in number seven, we think this is how he uses this kind of language in Genesis chapter one. And really, as you look throughout all of the Old Testament, anytime it says the first day or the second day, it pretty much clearly means an actual day. There's one potential exception to that. That's found in Hosea six, chapter two. Some people point to this and say, well, this isn't talking about a literal day. In Hosea six, Verse one, it says, come, let's return to the Lord for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let's learn, let's press on to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain as the spring rains water the earth. So is that literally talking about three days? It may not be in that passage. But what you actually have in that passage is another kind of Hebrew idiom. And, and the way it works is two and one, three, right? They'll do this and one more. And, and the point that Hosea is saying is the Lord will revive us quickly. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not be immediate, but it's going to be near two or three days, which again helps us to see that even in this passage, Day can't mean undefinite period of time. Because that's of no hope to them. The Lord will revive us in two or three ages. The point is, quickly. Soon it's going to happen. Because that's how we understand a day, what a day is. A third reason we should take these to be literal days is the use of evening and morning. And how should we understand evening and morning? Well, again, throughout the Old Testament, when we have this kind of phrase, evening and morning, the best way to understand it, I think, is actually this. 
uh, dusk to dawn. The twilight period to uh, sunset to sunrise. Now, the first three days is not sunset to sunrise because there's no sun yet, but it is light to darkness and then darkness to light. And again, in, in the Pentateuch, we see this phrase used elsewhere. Uh, for example, in Exodus 27, verse 21, the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a permanent statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. And here it's talking about the candles. So basically during the dark hours, you need to maintain the candles. So as Aaron and his sons read that and they say evening and morning, what should they immediately think? Well, the end of one day light time period to the beginning of the next one. And that's exactly what we'd expect to see in Genesis chapter one. There's evening and there's morning. The day of creation is concluded. We've reached evening and we're moving on to the next morning in which the next day of creation is going to start. The fourth reason that we should understand it this way is a parallel passage in Exodus chapter 20. Go back to Exodus, go, go to Exodus chapter 20, if you would, just so you can see this yourself. Exodus 20 and verse 8. This is part of the the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So an Israelite comes and reads this and says, the Lord made it in six days, and so you work in six days, and you rest on the seventh day. And what is he going to think? I know what that is. That's a week. Because every week we have the Sabbath. And there's six days, and then there's the seventh day. And, and that's God saying, this is how I made the world. This is the time frame of creation. Six days, and then I rested on the seventh. And that's a pattern for your week. And so how would I understand Genesis 1? Well, the same way they understood it when God talked about it there in Exodus 20. It's six normal, literal days, and then a seventh. And then one potential issue that we'll just kind of mention briefly is if you want to say, well, no, it's actually long periods of time. And so God, you know, made these things in day one. There's a long period of time before day two, and there's a long period of time before day three. It doesn't really make sense in light of the order that's given there. Uh, For example, you have plants and vegetation created on day three, and yet you have no sun until day four. And so you have plants and vegetation surviving for a long period of time without the sun, and you don't have insects until day six, when a lot of plant life can't really survive without the pollination work of insects. Now, could God have sustained creation through all that? Certainly. But that doesn't help us if we're trying to fit evolution in. And so if the goal is, how can we try to understand what Genesis 1 says in light of what we see in science? Making it longer doesn't help us there. I think it makes a lot more sense to say these are normal days. And so the plants can easily survive a day without the sun. They can survive a couple of days without insects. 
And so all of this, I think, would cause us to conclude if we come back and really try to wrestle with it again and say, is Genesis 1 not talking about days? I get to say, it seems it's really talking about days. And I don't know how to get around that. So what should I do? I should believe what God said. I should recognize I may not understand whatever other truth is causing me to doubt what's being said here. What I can do is say, God knows better than I do. So I've got to believe what he said. He made the world. He can tell me how he did it. And in the Bible, he told me he took six days. And so that's what I'm going to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And we ask that we would seek our best to understand what you have said so that we would be able to have confidence in, in saying this is your truth. And then to believe it with all of our hearts. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.